godliness with contentment is great gain. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen? Amen. Let's try it together. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. So next week if I call on you, 1 Timothy 6, 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. You don't leave the building unless you recite it. You get no ceviche unless you recite it. I'll try with me. 1 Timothy 6, 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Now you'll still get to leave the building, you'll still get ceviche, but imagine if that was the rule, you would learn it. You know what? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, to illustrate this so that we memorize it, and to be able to put a story attached to it that helps us understand it, we're going to continue in our expositional teaching through the book of Luke, and there isn't a better illustration, because the best illustration for Scripture is Scripture. There's not a better illustration for 1 Timothy 6.6 than when we come to the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, verses 18 to 23. So you can turn there, Luke 18, And let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. Now a certain ruler asked Jesus saying, good teacher, what shall, everyone say I do. do. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Everyone say, my youth. So the rich young ruler says, all these things I have kept since my So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and you say, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. A lot of folks misinterpret this verse. They think that the answer to Christendom is to sell all you have and give it to the poor. First of all, this verse wasn't written for, this doesn't apply to everyone. That's the first mistake we make when we read this. It doesn't apply to everyone. And the second mistake we apply with this text is that we think it doesn't apply to anyone. So let's pray and ask God for wisdom on who it applies to. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it doesn't return void. As we see this story of the rich young ruler wanting to find out the key to eternal life, he was empty. He had prominence. He had possessions. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And he lacked both. So God, I ask that you would minister to us as you examine our heart, coming into a new year, this opportunity to make a fresh start with you. That Lord, the things that are stirring that cause us to be discontented, we could lay before you and say, God, would you move upon my heart? Lord, I know that I'm saved by grace through faith. I have this relationship with you, but I'm just not fulfilled. Lord, would you bring that godliness and that contentment, bring them together that we would experience this great gain on this earth. And Lord, we thank you for the work you're about to do in and through our lives. We thank you that your word doesn't return void. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you lead us into all truth. So now, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat.
the rich young ruler. The word ruler, and the reason why it's titled the rich young ruler is because the word ruler and this man of great wealth, he was a Sanhedrin or he held a political position of prominence within the community. He was also young, which is fascinating because he had wealth, and not just wealth, great wealth, and he wasn't he wasn't just a wealthy young man. He was a young man that had prominence, a position of authority within the community. So he had risen to a level of prominence overseeing this, this community. People knew his name. They also realized that he had great power because of not only the position he held, but the wealth he possessed. And so this rich young ruler is obvious to all who are present. And he makes a point to come, and as he approaches the Lord, he says something that any good ruler uh, would not use, and we can't find in any of the Talmud or any of the teachings um, of, the, of the rabbis of that, that time where they would ever apply the word good to a teacher. Because based on the scriptures, there's only, only God is good. But he applies these words together, interestingly enough, maybe professing a faith, maybe wanting to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. But uniquely, he puts these two words together. He says, good teacher. Teacher is rabbi. He says, good teacher. Good teacher. What must, and then I had you repeat those two words, I do. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I was so blessed by Pastor Dave Guzik's message last week. And when he talked about this idea that, that there's nothing we can do to obtain righteousness. We can't do it. And, and here the first question he asks is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's a self-made man. He knows what it's like to wake up early, go to bed late, cross the T's, dot the I's, do the difficult thing. He knows how to navigate through society to rise within the ranks. He knows how to be diligent. He knows how to be disciplined. He, he knows how to find those folks that are significant within the culture, to seek them out, to find that wisdom. He's, he's curious. He's inquisitive. He's respectful. It's all listed here. You can find it. It's not that hard to, to pull this out. But there's something lacking, this idea of godliness. We're going to see that he professes a godliness, that he's kept the commandments since his youth. When he said, my youth, and I had to repeat that, my youth. It's, it's, a, it's a very telling term in, in, in Hebrew, also in Greek. My youth simply means that at 13 years of age, he became bar mitzvah, which means he becomes responsible for the law of Moses. He becomes a son of the law. We've covered this. We did it on, on um, Christmas Eve. When we looked at the, at, at the scripture in Galatians 3. The law. In Galatians 3, it says that, that, that Abraham was given the promise of God. We find that in Genesis 15, 8, I believe it is. Uh, 15, let's just leave it at that. Where it says, Abraham believed God and was accredited to him as righteousness. He was made Righteous. He believed in, in, in the propitiation that was to come. He was looking forward to a point in time by faith that, that, that the sacrifice of the Messiah would be upon the cross. And he looked forward to that point in time. For us as Christians, we look back on that point in time. But he trusted God for that provision that his sins would be taken care of upon the cross. That blood would be shed for the remission of sin. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was made right. His relationship with God was resolved. 
And then 430 years later, God gives the law. And you're like, why? Why would you give the law 400 plus years later when man had already figured out a relationship with, with God to trust him? Well, he gave the law for society that we would be able to live together as fallen creatures who are innately selfish, innately fallen. We're selfish creatures. And, and God said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, he, and he, he lays this out and he gives the law on how to dwell together. And as we covered that on, on Christmas Eve, this idea that God gives a downloaded moral app to Moses on Mount Sinai. First five commandments, relationship with God. Second five commandments, relationship with each other. He comes down off of the mountain. Three to five million Jews who had come out of slavery and now wandering in the wilderness. Their clothes aren't wearing out. Their shoes aren't wearing out. Water where there isn't any water. Food appears every morning. It's miraculous. But the greatest miracle of all, three to five million people dwelt together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army. (laughs) That's the law. You get it right here and you get it right here and we live together. We've got to understand we're accountable to God. You'll give an accounting of your life. You recognize there's a supreme authority, the laws of nature, nature's God. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, recognizing creator, recognizing accountability of that creator, and recognizing responsibility to one another. We are our brother's keeper. And in this, God gives us the law. Why does he give us the law? It says in Galatians 3, I speak in this manner of men, verse 15, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to the seeds, as of many, but as of one, whose seed is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God, the promise to Abraham that you're made righteous. The law didn't take that away. He says, for the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The law doesn't have anything to do with the promise. Why did God give the law? What purpose then does the law serve? Paul asked this question as a Jew, understanding the grace of God. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of the mediator. Is the law then against the promises of God? No. No, the the law isn't against the promises of God. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. The law doesn't make you righteous. Everyone breaks the law. Then why did he give it? Most evangelicals would say, and most churches in America would say, God gave the law to show you you're a wretched sinner. Whack! Hit your hand with a ruler. Like a mean Catholic nun or something. I don't know. I I had Miss Jonah Daskin for algebra. That's why I hate math. Jonah Daskin. That was our song for her. I don't know if she's living, but she caused many students to hate math. She was not a nice lady. I just, I'm like, anything with math. I think of Jonah Daskin. I'm just like, ah. (laughs) Two plus two is, ah. 
where is X? I don't know and I don't care. Somewhere other than this room and you. (laughs) I'm sorry, childhood. Back. Yes, the law is a school teacher along the lines of Miss Parker. She's my history teacher. Beautiful, had a crush on her. I know it's weird. Kind of. And, and she had this way of... She had this way of teaching where it was kind of a story. And I, I, I gosh, that's really... I, I kind of get it. I mean, I was a terrible student. I just, you know, most of the time I'd fallen asleep because I was practicing. I was an athlete. So I'd be practicing in the morning, practicing in the evening, and school was the time to take a nap. But I was awake for her class. And she would tell a story. And, and it was engaging. And I went, I went, I went away to college. And I, I don't know how I got into college. Because I was a good swimmer. And they're like, we'll let you in. So I get to college. And they're like, what do you want to major in? And I'm going, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm an athlete. I'm, I'm dumber than a box of rocks. And, and I, I go, History. Because the first time I ever saw my name in the top five of the students in the class was in the history class with Miss Parker. And, and, and I was third. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm good at that. Because I could see getting third place. That's bronze, and then there's silver, and there's gold. And I, I equated that, athlete. Okay, okay. <laughs> and so I thought, I'll, I'll do history. And I liked history because it was simple. Instead of, you know... Uh, business, uh, the analytical uh, organizational of, of contemplative theory. I'm like, <laughs> history, the history of America. History. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it was easy. I liked it. And it made sense. And, and, and that opened up a world of learning for me. So when I contemplate the passage, I don't look at a school teacher, someone racking your knuckles or making life difficult. I look at someone filling my brain to understand the complexity of the world so that I can see how it operates and make sense of it. And she would, she would lay out an uh, understanding of the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and the Founding Fathers. Back when there wasn't indoctrination, there was education, she was good at it. And I enjoyed it. And I started to contemplate these things and setting long before I knew the Lord, long before I knew the Lord, I was mesmerized by it. She was pretty too, and I was mesmerized by the teaching. <laughs> All right. You're having a problem because you're looking at me going, he isn't attractive. This is really a problem. <laughs> okay, shut up. I'm having a whole conversation with myself. Just hang in there. We'll... And so when the scripture says that the law is a school teacher to point us to Christ, this idea is that God would give us this teacher so that the the law doesn't, the law isn't against the promises of God. The law fulfills the promises of God. It says the scripture was, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which afterward would be revealed. For, therefore, the law was our teacher to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So it lays all this out. You know, I was talking to Charlie Kirk about this idea that he's a secular organization that's not Christian, but his excitement was the idea that there's this, this awakening happening with, with college students and younger 
where they're being awakened to, to spiritual uh, issues, spiritual concerns, simply by approaching the political world. And their eyes are being opened up. And he was sharing with me testimony after testimony at the last event in Palm Beach about people professing Christ just having gone to a secular gathering of, of, of political thought. And it was moving. And he said, I, I want you to build that bridge for turning point. I said, you know, I'm, I'm already putting together the sequence of understanding that. Because if you think about it, in the 6,000 years of recorded history, 244 years of this constitutional republic and the rest of all of history is an oligarchy where man suppresses and uses the law and weaponizes the law to suppress man. But over here, we take the law in accordance with Galatians 3 and we give man freedom. Freedom to apply restraints in order to pursue excellence because we recognize a creator that we have to be good here in order to be good here and then the culture flourishes. You understand that? So if you apply restraints towards the laws of nature and nature's God to be able to fulfill the full purpose of what God intended, you flourish. And there are absolutes and there's truth and we recognize a creator and it's an ideological position. And even those of conservative belief don't completely understand that faith and don't know where it comes from, but they love the principles that you don't steal from one another. You don't commit adultery. You don't lie. That makes for a healthy business community. But where do those come from? And in the process of time, as these things are established, people's eyes are opened up to this tutor, to this teacher. We're all, we're all bound by it. And there's consequences to our actions. You can suppress the truth for a lie and say that it's true. And, and there's, there's years of recorded history where we remove God, we, re, we remove inalienable rights, we remove accountability to a creator, and we've created all kinds of forms of government to establish that, whether it's fascism, communism, socialism, and we, we, we say remove God. And there's no absolutes. And all we need to do is throw off restraints. And this is Romans 1. We just have to throw off restraints. Well, if it works, why has it failed so many times? And why are billions of people dead? It doesn't work. And we're watching churches in America teach socialism and say that it's the closest form to Christianity. No, it isn't. It's a violation of two of the Ten Commandments. Even this rich young ruler would have understood that. It, it, thou shall not steal and thou shall not covet. Socialism is a violation of two of those. And you have to throw off the laws of nature and nature's God and the truth of that scripture to, to create this what you consider utopia. And I have to say, most young people gravitate towards socialism. And, and I, I actually commend them. I think, it's, I think it's, it's kind of indicative of the tenderness of your heart. Because capitalism, with the absence of the Lord, where you're just applying the laws of, of economics, but avoiding the spirit, which the law is a school teacher to point us to Christ, and you don't apply Christ, but you apply these laws of economics, you become wealthy. And when you become wealthy and you don't have a heart for the Lord, you become greedy. And, and young people, starting out in life, look and they say, there's a disparity between the wealthy and the poor. How do we fix this? Well, in the simplicity of socialism, and they're taught by a teacher, and socialism only works on campuses. It works in heaven and in hell. In heaven, they don't need it. In hell, they can't get rid of it. <laughs> but here you have this picture 
You have this picture where they look at the disparity and they see people impoverished, they see people wealthy, flying in jets and, and driving this and eating that and, and, and it's just the money they throw away these people could live on. And they look at it and say, the simplicity of it is take from them and let them have just what they need and give to them. Makes sense. They're trying to come up with a solution because they're looking at a culture that is inundated with wealth and they're watching people starve and they can't comprehend it. And they've got teachers that are willing to feed this, this failed system as though somehow it's now going to work even though it's failed for hundreds of years and everywhere it's been applied, people have died. And they go, well, that's a different type of communism. That's a different kind of socialism. By the way, people say, well, communism, fascism, America, no, fascism and communism are the same. It's, it's, it's a horseshoe. Here you have a constitutional republic where men and women have freedom. Down here you have fascism and communism and they're closer points because it's an oligarchy. The few rule the many. It's, you're in charge of production and means. And you, get, and you get the weaponry and you get to hold people in slavery. See, when the laws of nature and nature's God are applied properly, men flourish. When you weaponize the law, freedom is diminished and you use the law to suppress human beings and you take away freedom when you take away freedom people aren't creative we all have to dress the same walk the same we get the exact same bowl of rice no creativity you're getting an a you're getting an f i give you want to do the socialism i take two grades from you you get a c i give you two grades you get a c and you're both equal well the next time we have another semester you're not going to work as hard because you why what's the point and you're going to be waiting for your handout so productivity will decrease that's why you take the fourth greatest nation in the Western Hemisphere, Venezuela, and you apply socialism to it, and now their entire society is eating their zoo animals and they're starving. They call it the Venezuelan diet. You, you lose 25 pounds in a year. It doesn't work. Well, no, 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 that's, we're, we're going to apply democratic socialism. I saw a meme. It was a dog do. It said socialism, and then over here it said democratic socialism. It had sprinkles on it. Like, oh. <laughs> I could show you the picture, but I thought I'd just describe it. <laughs> but I get why young people see that, because what is the, how do you resolve it? Well, the problem is, whether it's capitalism or whether it's socialism, there's still greed in the human heart. And every one of us is struggling with this. We want to live in a utopia, but the problem is, those things we want to do, we don't do. And those things we don't want to do, those we do. We all have a thing we call the sin nature. Whatever rule we make for ourselves, we break it. And so one of the attempts is what we do is, well, let's just change the rules. Adultery is no longer legal. Just make up the rules. Stealing is no longer legal. You're, you, the government allows you to steal. It's no longer a life. You, it, it, even in the womb, even babies, we, we, can, we can harvest the organs. It's legal. Let's just do it. And you go, well, okay. And so what happens? Well, it's going to come due. The laws of nature, nature's God, he exists. And, it, and, and the bill's going to come due. You can't suppress the truth with a lie without the bill coming due. The truth will always rise like cream. And you're going to watch an economy collapse. You're going to watch debt increase, productivity decrease. You're going to watch people impoverished. You're going to watch a few rule the many. 
You're going to watch your freedoms. This, this is fascinating to me. Global warming. The solution to global warming is to give away all your rights and have the government fix it. Oh, that's brilliant. I mean, look what they did for the DMV. I think this would be awesome. That's the answer. And yet, we come to a place where God gives us the laws of school teacher to point us to Christ, the laws of nature, nature's God. And we at the church have neglected teaching our civic responsibility and our engagement in the public square to establish a culture that points people to the Lord by laws that declare the laws of nature and nature's God. We have to be active in participating in that capacity because most people understand this and in the heart of every human being is a cry for liberty. And when he comes to him and he says, good teacher, he recognizes that he is better than all the other teachers. There's something special. He's got substance. And I know you have an answer of something that's longing in my heart. You're good. And I'm missing something here. And I'm drawn to truth. And that's an amazing thing. Millennials have been picked on, but their, their eyes are opening and there's an awakening. And the X, Y, and Z generation, they're, they're not putting up with it anymore. The indoctrination's over. I want to know truth. And they're, they're fervent. And they're looking at the apathy of the older generations. They're saying, I'm not going to live in a world that's hopeless. I want to know how to fix this. And they're endeavoring and digging in and fighting hard. And the amazing thing is, they're coming and they're asking these questions and they're awakening and this man comes and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the premise is wrong. There's nothing you can do. You see, sinful man, holy God, chasm. Now, don't get all upset because I called you wretched sinners. <laughs> and don't get prideful because I called you holy God. All right? Just, we're splitting the room for illustration. How does a sinful man reconcile to a holy God? Reconcile, relongari in the Latin, to reconnect, relink, religion. How do we span that chasm? There's nothing you can do to get rid of your failure. You break the law every day. There's none righteous, no, not one. You're helpless. What can I do? Nothing. You'll never do enough good to be able to jump that chasm. God is, the Bible says in Isaiah that our, our righteous deeds, all the good stuff you've ever done, are but filthy rags. The word filthy is like the, the bandages they put around a leper's, a leper's wounds that had pus and maggots and, and you pull those off and you like dress yourself. Hey, that, that's, that's what you look like. And you dress yourself up and you do a little bow tie with that filthy rag and maggot laden. And you're like, I'm ready for dinner. And everyone's like, Hell. it just doesn't work. Your righteous deeds are but filthy rags in comparison to a holy and just God. How do you span that chasm? There's nothing you can do. No matter how hard you try, you still fail. And yes, the law reminds you of your failure, but the law could never save you. No matter how hard you try, you'll never be able to be saved by the law. You'll never be righteous. But the law was given to hold you in a place to see the Lord so that you could come to a place of realizing, I need something, and that, that Jesus is good. And what do I need to do? And the Lord says, the only thing you need to do is die. Die? Like kill myself? No. Yield to me, and I will come in and live in you. You believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. You're saved by grace, through faith, just like 
Abraham, saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. You can't earn it. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. The cool thing about being a Christian is you can't brag about it like you obtained it because you're special. You're not. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. You're saved by grace through faith. Whether you're rich or poor, doesn't matter. You're saved. And you receive that by faith. And then that spans the chasm. It's this cross of Christ that's behind me and illustrated with me doing this. You walk across that cross of Christ into the presence relinked, reconnected with a holy God. In the meantime, you're being held in check by a law that points to Christ. You start to see the consequences of your actions. You start to realize that when I steal, then all of a sudden we can't trust anyone in culture. When I commit adultery, now we can't have friendships and relationships. And you build this culture where people appreciate it. And they they long for more. And with that comes wealth. And with that wealth comes greed. And with that greed comes disparity. And you have this cry in your human heart, how do I resolve this? And then God speaks. And just like this young man who had title and position trapped in the jungles of prosperity, he still had the emptiness as Blaise Pascal says, the French philosopher, he had a God-shaped void that only God could fill. There's no other piece in the jigsaw puzzle that fits but Jesus. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't go, well, you're a wretched sinner and there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. You're, You're a waste of space. He doesn't say that. The thing I love about what the Lord does is he asks him a question. That's the amazing thing about the Lord. And I'll tell you what, it's a good one to learn, especially for young people. Listen, folks, young people specifically, people don't want to really know about you as much as they want you to know about them. Let me say that again. People don't want to know about you. They want you to know about them. If you sit down with someone, you will become very wise if you ask questions. You'll be really stupid if you do all the talking. I want to tell you about me. I, I, my, my company jet would fly into the short runways into Aspen because I was a very wealthy person and I, I accomplished these great things and I've, I've figured out uh, the genome and I've done all these other things and I'm very, whatever. But when you look at someone, you say, tell me a little bit about yourself. And the amazing thing is they'll give you everything. I've learned this in sales. Silence is really effective to understand the information you need to make the sale that's necessary. They're going to reveal it. You just ask them questions. Wise people are silent. God gave you two ears, one mouth. Do more listening than you do talking. And as you're sitting there quiet and they're just talking, you you start to get an insight into what is important to them. You get an insight into what they like and dislike. They start to reveal things that they don't want. And then you can navigate to their heart. In sincerity. Uh, One person in particular is a tough person to deal with because they just don't talk. Hard to sell. They don't talk. I'll call them. There'll be silence on the other end. And I learned in sales to remain silent. You're already uncomfortable, I can tell. And they have a cockatiel and it'll make a noise. I know you're still there, heard your bird. I'm gonna kill that thing. But when you sit with people, they love to tell you about themselves because they're longing for connection. God created us relationally. And so Jesus asked him a question, he says, 
Why do you call me good? Boy, what an what a open question. What a chance to really learn about somebody. Why do you call me good? He says, no one is good except for God. What are you telling me, young man? And he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You know what Jesus did? He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Ten commandments. First five commandments is our relationship with God. Second five commandments is our relationship with each other. Jesus only quotes the second five commandments. He's doing a really good job with people. But he doesn't know about the Lord. He knows about the law on how to live in society, but he has no connection with God Almighty. Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man jumps on and he says, all these things I have kept since my bar mitzvah, since I became a community member as an adult, dwelling without stealing, without lying, without committing adultery, without coveting, honoring my mother and father, I have done that since I was 13. I am a responsible citizen. You are right, and I have kept those rules. When Jesus heard these things, he said, well, you lack one thing, okay? He says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then he says, and come with two words, follow me. The whole story is Jesus looking at him saying, you got this down, you got the law, you're a son of the law, you understand how to dwell in community, you know how to treat people right, but you're lacking something, you don't have a relationship with the living God. The law has been a school teacher to point you to me, and I'm here. Follow me. Follow me. Oh. How do I follow you? Well, your problem, the thing that stands in the way of you and me, is that you love something more than me. You love your wealth. So why don't you sell that and get that out of the way, and then you and I have the freedom to re reconnect. And he goes, well, I... I love my money more than you. And he walked away sorrowful. Again, the misinterpretation of the passage is we think everyone has to sell their stuff before they can walk with the Lord. That's not true. And then the other is that we think nobody has to do it. Both are not true. In this case, God knows right now what stands between you and him. We're coming into 2020 and there's something that's necessary. But when we look at this teaching of the rich young ruler and we see the passage, now godliness with contentment is great gain. First Timothy 6, 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. He's missing the godliness and the contentment. He's got the law and he knows how to live right, but he's missing something. He's not content. There's never enough. You're always dissatisfied. There's never enough. Money isn't the solution to your problem. It's an accelerant. It'll make you more of what you already are. You think someone else's money is a solution to your problem and you're completely wrong. Your problem, my problem, is simply a vertical problem that will translate to this, a horizontal. We have to get right with the Lord. 
You think someone else's stuff is the answer to your happiness. You're not content. And even when your wealth, you're not content because there's never enough. You're never happy. How do you survive this? I'll give you proof. Every church in America is struggling right now. Every church in America is struggling. And, and I don't think it was intended by the, the government officials, certainly not Trump. But when they changed the tax laws, there's no deduction for your tithing anymore, with the exception if you tithe $25,000 or more. Tithing has precipitously dropped in churches across America. Now the question is, why were we giving? I mean, that's revelatory. Why were we giving? For a tax break? You see, in this picture, the Lord is saying, this stands between you and me. And the Lord wanted to bring an antidote to his greed, and that's contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 is the antidote to greed. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Jesus wanted him to follow him. Now that's dangerous. I'm limited in time. In the next 14 minutes, I want to give you an illustration through a, a person of history who can best illustrate this rich young ruler better than anyone else I've studied in history. He became rich when he was young and remained rich when he was old. He was a titan of industry. He gave away, while he lived, more than 85% of his income. He established that he would live within his means simply. This far and no further. He wrote a, a book called The Gospel of Wealth. He was raised as a Scottish Presbyterian. And his, father, his father was dirt poor and begged for work. And as a young boy, he'd witnessed his dad begging for work. And he said, that should never be. He's willing to work and no one will hire him. What kind of a society doesn't allow people to work and feed their family? And he purposed that he would do away with that in his lifetime to the best of his ability. And he was tenacious and he worked hard. And he rose in the ranks and became a titan of industry. Last service, nobody knew who it was. Does anyone know who it is? Good, smarter group. That's, you were, came late because you were reading. Yeah, Andrew Carnegie. Most of the folks in the room didn't know who he was. Now he's pretty much modern history. Nobody in the room knows a rich young ruler's name. And those who said Andrew Carnegie probably didn't know the fact that he had given away. And this is a portion. He's Scottish-American industrialist, made a huge fortune. He gave 85% of it away before he died. By the time of his death, Carnegie had given away around $350 million, equivalent to $77 billion at today's rate, making him one of the most generous men who ever lived. And during that time in, the, in, in this industry of titans where they were expanding because America had established freedom and capitalism and, and, and this constitutional republic and, and pushing it out with 
teaching students how not to steal and lie and cheat. And so he had good workers that would come and people would put in a hard hard day's work and and scripture was a vernacular of the society and they understood if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. They were applying all these principles through the scriptures and the culture was flourishing and America was just doing great. And in the course of this, he writes a book called The Gospel of Wealth and it just irritates every person of wealth. And he starts to talk about how the wealth was given to you as a steward, not for your ingratiating luxury, but to make a difference while you're alive on the earth. He said, money is a burden. It requires responsibility before God. And he wrote this, and, and Vanderbilt would be moved by it at the end of his life, but others would struggle over it, J.P. Morgan and, and others. Charles Schwab, uh, he he ran in, he was, a, he was a clerk in a department store on a rainy day in New York, and all the other clerks were just, the, the business was slow, and they were all talking about what they did the night before, and a woman comes in drenched and soaking wet, and Schwab was a, a young clerk, and he sees this woman come in, nobody gets up to help her, and he is committed, and he had read these things, and he was committed, and he goes over and he says, Madam, how can I help you? And she starts asking, and he is running over and explaining each of the details, and she's, she's, she's inquisitive, and he's, he's asking questions, and, and he, he helps her. Most people go, what an irritation. Why so many questions? I, I, it's my lunch break, and I have to stop for a minute. It doesn't matter who you are in the room. Some of you find joy and contentment in your work, and it doesn't matter what position you hold. You found that God appoints all positions of authority. You've taken that job. You don't look at it and go, my job's terrible, and you don't understand my boss. The Bible says God appoints all positions of authority. He gave you the boss you needed. And you find contentment by being in the center of his will and saying, God, I want to be the best bottle washer on the planet. I want to, I want to be content, and I want to serve you. And in doing that, you become a person of substance. People can trust you. And a company is only as great as the people that encompass the company. Some get wealthy, some don't. But everyone can have godliness with contentment. And as this guy is doing this, the woman ends up being (laughs) Carnegie's wife. And she calls the department store and she says, I want to outfit our home in Scotland And I want that young man who helped me to be in charge of it all. That was Charles Schwab, started his whole career by being attentive to one person. The idea is, when you're content, it shows. The true test of a servant is how you act when you're being treated like one. Let me repeat it. The true test of a servant is how you act when you're being treated like one. One of the key components of ministry, and I learned this in San Jose, tried to apply it here. Before you ordain someone, and I've failed on a couple of occasions, and that's why it says don't be quick to lay hands on someone, but we're starting to see this, and the older I get, the more important I, I, I see it to be, because I don't want to let someone down. What you look for in ordination is a servant. A servant. Because if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you'd be a servant of all. And you can tell when someone doesn't enjoy what they're doing. They're missing a component called contentment. They may have godliness, but they're missing the contentment. 
they're justified. They're saved by grace through faith. They have a relationship with the Lord, but they're not content. Those components have to go together. That's great gain. And with that gain comes substance. And, and the apostle Paul said, look, I was blameless in regards to the law. Concerning the law, I was blameless, Philippians 3, 6. He said, I can keep the law, but the idea is having a relationship with the Lord. It's having a relationship with the Lord. And so here you have this man who gives away the equivalent of $77 billion before he dies. That's a ton of money. And some of you are going, well, I wish I had it. Well, the one thing that Carnegie wouldn't do was give money to people who wouldn't work. Money is dangerous. There's some of you here going, if I won the lottery, and, and, and you just write it out. You've already sat in your bed, and you've bought your dollar ticket, and you've, you've thought about it. Oh, I'd tithe. No, you wouldn't. You don't even tithe now. Yo, I'd give it that first. Everything that you're on that list would always be about you. I'd go on a cruise, and then I'd buy a house, and I'd get the thing, and then I'd put a building in my name, and I'd do something. Tell me you're going, no, mm-mm. Okay, whatever. <laughs> and the reason why I know you is because I know me. I'm just as greedy and selfish as you are. And you know what? The times I've ruminated over that kind of wealth, it's nauseated me. Having money is a burden. You're like, I want it. You have to have armed security guards. You never know if somebody really likes you or not. Even your family is messing with you. You never know. You never know what true love is. The poor, on the other hand, if you have a friend, they really like you. They really like you. The rich don't have that luxury. They're burdened. They carry it and their world is small. And they struggle. The people who have the greatest contentment who have wealth are the ones who have contentment because they have the antidote to the greed, which is contentment. They give it away. They're generous. There's nothing wrong with money. Just the love of money. Carnegie wrote, If a man would eat, he must work. A life of elegant leisure is the life of an unworthy citizen. The republic does not owe him a living. It is he who owes the republic a life of usefulness. He didn't even want his kids to be trust fund kids because he knew it would ruin them. They didn't earn it. He didn't want to give it to anyone who didn't work. It's an accelerant. So he built libraries because he thought this would give people the access to knowledge. And, and knowledge comes the ability to better yourself. Every city in America has a library that was built by Carnegie. He built schools of higher learning. He said there is no use whatever trying to help people who do not help themselves. But he still gave away $77 billion. Surplus wealth is a sacred trust which his possessor is bound to administer in his lifetime for the good of his community. People say, I'm going to give it when I die. You give nothing when you die. You're dead. No, I put it in my will. It's not your will. You're dead. If it's a living trust, give it while you're alive. I'm not saying it to give here. I'm saying it that you would have the antidote to greed, which is contentment. The reason why we hold on to it and the rich young ruler held on to it is because he was afraid. Remember, there's nothing wrong with money, but there is something very wrong with the love of money. Because in 
1 Timothy 6, and I'm almost finished. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Money's not wrong. It's just the love of money. You lay awake worrying about it. How do you get godliness with contentment to have great gain? You just realize you're a steward. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I'm yours. Now this is a tough one because you love people and you use things. You don't use people and love things. Remember, we studied this. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. I read this to you out of Timothy. And here's my point. Look at me. The rich young ruler was a son of the law. He had succeeded in business and in industry and in popularity and significance. But he was missing something. A relationship with God. Dangerous proposition. Be careful. (laughs) Be careful. You come to the Lord recognizing your need. You've had it all, but something's missing. Oh, just missing. Some of you are missing it even in your wealth and some of you think wealth is the answer to it and others have obtained it and realize it's not the answer. It doesn't matter where you are in the scale of things. You're empty. Here's the problem. Jesus says two words. Follow me. Follow me. You follow him. This connects And this connects. The rich young ruler was missing this. He knew as a student of the law, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus would go on later to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments. Hang all the law of the prophets. You connect here, you'll connect here. It will radically transform your life. You will be a steward of what I entrust to you, that thy kingdom come, thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. You will be used for his purposes, to apply his principles of law for a nation to be pointed to Christ in everything you do. It's not so that you can live in the lap of luxury. I don't fault anyone for what they do. I'm just telling you, do you want godliness with contentment? It's not found in luxury. Enjoy it. You earned it. Praise God. But you'll give an accounting for it. And God looks and says, what are we going to do? And it may be for you wealth and for others, it may be different. This isn't for everyone to go sell all they have and follow the Lord. This is the thing that separated him. We come back to what we started with. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And as I laid my heart before the Lord in relation to this passage... 
I, like you, know what godliness is. I've been saved by grace through faith. I've been justified just as if I'd never sinned. God has cast my sins as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. I believe God and he's accredited to me as righteousness and so I'm reconnected. But like a lot of you, you have that relationship with the Lord and we, we're righteous, amen? Not because of what we've done, but because of what he did, amen? We're righteous. Or better word, we're godly. But doggone it, we're not content. We're not content. You're running after every bell, whistle, bobble, trinket. It's always something, and it's just nagging you. You're not content. Maybe it's the rich young ruler's problem, but for me, I... I, Just say to the Lord, Lord, what's missing in my heart? A little quiet time with him. He reminded me how much I love the smell of paper. Not money. Paper. I love the feel of a book in my hands. And the smell of paper and a turning page. The simplicity of not being distracted by being able to surf anywhere in the web, but being held to the text in front of your eyes. The Lord's calling me to a book. Put your phone down and come and read my word, just you and me in the mornings. The Lord used my wife to open up my eyes to this, and I I purposed in this coming year, I'm going to spend time with the Lord with a book, not a computer, not my phone. I'll read a little bit and then I'll play solitaire and I'll read some more and I'll play solitaire and I'll play chess and then I'll come back and that's not a devotion. That's just complete distraction. I just want to sit before the Lord in the quietness and here's, here's the struggle. All things are laid bare before the Lord and if you're yielded before him and you say, God, what is it that's lacking He is so faithful to show you what it is. You're like, yeah, I don't want to get rid of that. (laughs) You want to have a special year? You want to make your life count? He'll tell you what it is. You're saved by grace through faith. You have the godliness. Now you want contentment? He'll show you how to surrender it. What is it that you love more than the Lord? The Bible says you become like that which you worship. Here's the dangerous part. If you worship the Lord, you're going to become like him. You're going to be generous and humble. You're going to be a servant. You're going to lay your life down. You're going to be patient, long-suffering, You're not going to look at people as opportunities, meaning that they're the next rung in your ladder of success. You're going to look at them as an opportunity to minister to, for you to serve them, not for them to serve you. You're on this earth to serve. You want to be great in my kingdom, God says? Be a servant. And I got news for you. You step into that realm and you will be tested You will walk the Via Dolorosa. You will be maligned. You will be cheated. You will be 
you trust me, you'll get it. And great is your reward in heaven. And if you're given something, you're going to lay it before me and say, God, what do you want to do with it? But the one thing I promise you, God says, as you lay your life down, the one thing I promise you, you'll be content. And with that will come great gain. I started with 1 Timothy 6.6. Now godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. Boy, what an antidote to greed. What an antidote to discontentedness. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Just lay it out. Lord, here's my life. And watch what he does in the coming years.